Well, I want to start this morning um, as soon as they get my PowerPoint on the screen. No pressure or anything. I want to start by uh, reading you a verse out of Ecclesiastes, which probably seems odd, but that's all right. Ecclesiastes 7.2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In pastoral ministry, you know, there's a couple of key events in people's lives that I get to participate in. One is, of course, a wedding, um, which is a a great joy, and the other is a funeral. House of Feasting here is describing a wedding, I think, a a party, and a House of Mourning is describing a funeral. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, wisest man that ever lived, says that a funeral or a time of mourning provides a better opportunity for us to gain wisdom and growth than the time of a wedding or a party. And that seems counterintuitive to us because we sure like weddings a lot more than funerals. So why does he say this? Why in his meditation on wisdom is and life under the sun is Solomon saying, actually, it's better for you to go to a funeral than to go and enjoy a wedding. Why would he say this? Well, because a funeral puts everything in perspective in many ways. It shows us where each one of us will end up. And so we have to take that to heart and we have to think about it. Now, I don't want to be all morbid this morning and ruin your Sunday morning by talking that way, but Solomon is right here. And you intuitively know that Solomon is right here. We're all going to end up in the same place. And thinking about that truth and that reality of the human condition should cause us to learn from it. So what sort of things can we learn from the fact that we will all end up, right? He says it right here. This is the end of all mankind. This is where you're headed. Hopefully not soon, but this is where all of us are headed. So what can we learn from this? Well, there's a lot of things we can learn from the fact that this is the end of all mankind, but one of the main things that we can learn from this reality is we need to think about the reason why each of us will end up here. Why is this the end of all mankind? Because this is not how God originally intended it to be. This is not how life, human life, human existence was supposed to work with funerals being the end for each one of us. Why are we in this position? Well, we're in this predicament because of the sin of Adam in the garden and the consequences that that sin brought on him and on all of us. We're in this position because the wages of sin is death and because God brings judgment on sin, and that judgment is death, and we deserve God's judgment, and so we die. And the fact is that when we think about this, and we think about this being the end of all mankind, we need someone to deliver us from the ultimate judgment, which is separation from God's presence for all of eternity, death, the second death. We need someone to deliver us from that because God is just, and he must judge any slight to his glory. He must judge any rebellion that comes against him and denies who he is in his holiness and in his love and in his character. 
And so what we need is we need someone to take that judgment for us on our behalf because we cannot bear the weight of it on our own, in ourselves. What we need is we need death, our ultimate enemy, to be conquered. And we need the wrath of God for sin to be satisfied and filled up and spent completely on someone else because we can't bear the weight of it. Of course, that's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to be a ransom for us, Mark 10, 45. And you're going to see that played out today in the story of the crucifixion in Mark chapter 15. So open there, if you're not there, Mark 15, verses 33 to 47 is where we'll be this morning. I assume most of you are already there. And what we're going to see in this passage is two declarations from the death of Christ that will strengthen our faith in his sacrificial death, okay? So two declarations from the death of Christ that are aimed to strengthen our faith, to build you up in your faith, to give you confidence in the work of Christ and what that means for you this morning. Two declarations that strengthen our faith. The first one of these is in verses 33 to 39, and it's that Jesus was forsaken for our access. He was forsaken for our access. So last week, we talked at length about the scorn and the degradation, the dehumanization of crucifixion and the mockery that Jesus endured on the cross. The whole passage leading up to this from verses 16 to 32 highlights that reality and that fact, and we saw that last week. And most of that was from other human beings. It was aimed at Jesus from other human beings. And now, as we get to verse 33 and we get closer to the moment of Christ's death, now we're going to see Mark begin to transition and turn to the divine response to Jesus on the cross. Human beings have mocked. What is God the Father's response to his son being on the cross? Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour, you probably know, was around noon. The third hour was 9 a.m., so Mark's kind of taking us through the day here in chunks of three-hour time segments, and he gets to noon. So Jesus has been on the cross for around three hours, give or take some time at this point. But around that time, around noon, and right in the middle of the day, something pretty incredible happens. And it's easy for us to read this sort of casually and skip over the fact that Darkness descended over the whole land for three hours in the middle of the day. When you think about that happening, and even when you try to put yourself in that situation, it's hard for us to grasp what that would have been like, because here, darkness is really not that dark for us, you know? I mean, we have the city lights, we have street lights, we have cell phones where we can turn our little LED light on, and it's really never that dark for us here. You turn all the lights out in your house, even if the street lights go out, it's really not that dark for us here. But they didn't have street lights. They didn't have massive city lights during that day. And so for darkness to cover the whole land for three straight hours would have been a dramatic and a significant and a scary event for these people to endure. Why did the darkness fall over the land for the space of three hours? Well, in the Old Testament, darkness was a sign of God's judgment. And the language here actually echoes Exodus chapter 10, 
which is right in the middle of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt through the plagues that take place on Egypt. And in that situation, God sends darkness over the entire land of Egypt for three days in that situation, but he sends darkness over the land of Egypt as a judgment to show his displeasure with what they're doing to his people. And so here, darkness covers the land as a way of showing that Jesus is experiencing what it's like to be judged by God the Father when he is hanging on the cross. Look at verse 34. And at the ninth hour, so three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus, after three hours of darkness, cries out from the cross with a loud voice, and he quotes these words, which are from Psalm 22, the first verse of Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 is written by David, and so Jesus is identifying here with David, and David is presenting himself in Psalm 22 as a righteous sufferer, one who does not deserve what he is getting, but a sufferer who feels abandoned and forsaken by God, and that his suffering is a result of God's abandonment of him. That's how David feels. And so Jesus quotes that here to identify himself with David in a number of ways, but specifically with the the forsakenness, and the abandonment by the Father. Listen to the context in which this comes, and you can see it a little bit further. Verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And it goes on like this in that psalm. And so Jesus appropriates these words to his situation and identifies with this and says, this is what's happening to me now. But you have to think very carefully about what's going on here on the cross. And sometimes we can get off in how we understand what's happening to the second person of the Trinity when he receives or feels forsaken by God the Father on the cross. One of the things that we have to say and that we have to understand here is there's not a a fracture in the Trinity. There's not a, a holy brouhaha between the Father and the Son on the cross. They're not warring with each other. They're not fighting with each other. God the Father is not so angry with his Son specifically that now they've become two gods rather than one God in two persons. What's happening here? Jesus, in his humanity, is experiencing what it's like to be judged and separated from the fellowship and the care of God the Father here. There's some element of mystery here. As I read different people try to explain this, it's hard to get at what's actually happening. There is an element of mystery here, and that should bring us to worship the Lord for what's happening for us, but I think John Calvin is helpful here. But this we say that he bore the weight of the divine anger, that, smitten and afflicted, he experienced all the signs of an angry and avenging God. And this is what we've, we've been led up to by Mark. I mean, remember in the, the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus is there in the garden, and he's collapsing under the weight of looking into that cup of divine wrath and judgment. And he began to look into that cup in the garden, but here on the cross, he's experiencing what it's like to actually drink that cup. 
and to feel the forsakenness and the abandonment and being severed from his father on the cross. This is a cup that would overwhelm you and I. There's no way we could drink this cup. It would take all of eternity for you and I to be able to begin to drink this cup. We could never handle this judgment of an eternal, transcendent God for our sin. You and I could never handle this. But Jesus, in this moment, because of who he is, is able to take this cup and to drink the cup fully of every last drop of the judgment and the wrath of God that you and I deserved. Now, when you think about that, let's try a little bit to put our response to that in perspective. I know some of you have had medical tests in your life before where you have uh, had some pretty serious consequences that may be coming up from those tests. Something pretty serious could be wrong and you're not sure. And so you go into the doctor or the hospital and you have a test and there's a period of time where you have to wait for the results to come in. And there's nervousness as you're waiting and you're anticipating what could possibly be wrong. And I know some of you have had that situation in front of you, and then you've gotten the test results back from the doctor, and everything's fine, and it's good. And you're free and clear of any of the future suffering that may be coming your way because of whatever, uh, whatever disease may have been there and whatever could have been the results of that, those tests that were performed on you. So when you have that experience, there's a, there's a great sense of relief. When that doctor says, hey, it's, everything's fine, it's really just a minor issue, nothing to worry about at all, there's a great sense of, of relief that you have when you, when you have that experience. And I want you this morning to take that sense of relief and multiply that sense of relief into joy over thinking that you do not have to drink this cup here. You have been spared from the results of drinking this cup of the wrath of God for all of eternity because of what Jesus Christ does here on the cross. God's judgment on us has been turned aside. That is good news. That's why we call this the gospel. It's really good news. But when the people hear this cry from Jesus on the cross, they think he's calling for Elijah. This is interesting. Look at verse verse 35. And some of the bystanders, hearing it, hearing his cry, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Now, why do they think this? Well, it kind of sounds like Elijah in Aramaic. But there's a common association with, in the, among Jews at this time that Elijah, because he, was, he never died, he went straight to heaven, that he was available in the eschaton at the end times to be able to come back and to rescue those who were suffering. And so they think here that maybe Jesus is calling for Elijah to come and spare him from this suffering. So maybe they think that the end times are upon us because he's calling for this here. And that helps us understand what they do in verse 36. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now they might be taunting Jesus here, as if, oh yeah, sure, Elijah's going to come, let's wait and see. But they also could be giving him this drink to sort of refresh him and to help him last a little bit longer, maybe to see if Elijah actually would come to help him. Obviously, with darkness descending on the land for three hours, they know something significant is going on here. 
And so they may, have, they may have thought this. But it's right at that moment that Jesus dies. Look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, what's interesting about the way he dies here is that he cries out with a loud voice. That's how Mark articulates it. And one of the things you have to understand about crucifixion is you sort of slowly lose strength and consciousness as you are crucified. I mean, typically this process took days and days of hanging on the cross, and the victim would lose consciousness and would sort of lose his ability to see things and to hear things and would almost enter into a coma-like state as they hung on the cross. And you're losing blood, you're losing the ability to breathe. A lot of people died through asphyxiation on the cross. There's a lack of water there. And so you sort of lose control of your senses and aren't really aware of what's going on. Well, that's not how Jesus dies. He doesn't sort of whimper out here at the end. And the fact that he cries out with a loud cry at the moment of his death would have been utterly unique to a victim of crucifixion. And what this tells us is that Jesus is in full possession of his faculties right up until the moment of death. He's experiencing the judgment and the wrath of God, what that is like right up until the moment of his death. He's in complete control of everything that's happening to him. So what does happen when he dies? Well, there are two major events that Mark recounts here that happen at the moment of Jesus' death. First, in verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now keep in mind, when you think about the temple here, keep in mind the way Mark has described Jesus' relationship to the temple from chapter 11 on. What has Jesus done? Well, he's gone in and cleansed the temple. He's given parables against the leadership of the temple, the religious leaders. He's debated them in the temple. He, he even predicted the destruction of the temple with an entire chapter in Mark chapter 13. And so I think here at the moment of Jesus's death, when the veil is torn into from top to bottom, this indicates that the temple system will end. This is sort of like a first blow given against the temple, that this thing will come to an end because of my death. It's a prediction of the final destruction of the temple. But I also think there's something else going on here that will result from the destruction of the temple and from this first attack on the temple that Jesus has happened here at his death. Remember the words that people mocked Jesus with? You said that you would destroy the temple and build it again in three days. Remember those words they mocked him with on the cross? And we know that he was talking about his body and himself as the temple, the replacement of the temple. And it's through him destroying the old, rending the veil on the old, and himself in his body being the new temple that we now have access to God, even though we're sinners. Jesus was talking about his body as the new temple here. And of course, the, the temple is the place that human beings come into contact with God. It's the place where they access and, and dwell in the presence of God. And so this rending of the veil opens the way through the death of Christ for us into the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 10 describes this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, 
into the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. It's through his death, through the destruction of his flesh, that he opened up the new way for us, access to the Father. So that's the first thing that happens when Jesus dies. But the second thing is found in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, this is really the high point of the Gospel of Mark. Everything has been leading up to this point. And when you read this, it may not seem that spectacular to you and I to read this because we're very used to calling Jesus the Son of God. That language is very common for us. But if you go back and read the whole Gospel of Mark, this is the first time that a human being has rightfully acknowledged Jesus as the divine Son of God. Peter proclaimed him as Messiah. He's himself, he called himself the Son of Man, but this is the first time that anyone has said, this is the divine Son of God. And ironically enough, this is a Gentile centurion who does this. Mark has keyed us into this reality very early on, Mark 1.1. Mark tells the reader who this is, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And God the Father twice proclaimed Jesus as his Son, at, the, at his baptism and at his transfiguration, but no human being has done this yet. But notice how the centurion came to this realization. Look what it says in 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, there was something about the way Jesus died that led him to this. We don't know exactly what it was. Mark doesn't tell us. Was it the way he cried out at the end and that was so unique and so different? Was it the darkness? Was it the tearing of the temple veil? Maybe he could see that or was aware of that happening. We don't know exactly what it was. But the point of this here is that it's in his death that Jesus is clearly seen as the Son of God. It's at the cross that God reveals his great love to us, and it's at the cross that God reveals the true identity of his son to us. We know the Father and the Son through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We know who God is. We know who his son is through the cross. That's the place of revelation. And that makes sense if you think about it. That's our first encounter with God. It's through the gospel and through the message of the cross. So I want you to keep in mind the declaration that we're seeing here in verses 33 to 39, that Jesus was forsaken for our access. He was judged. He was abandoned in some ways for our access. The veil was torn, giving us access through Christ's death to a relationship with the Father. And he's only able to do that because he is the Son of God. Now, when you, when you see here in verse 38 that the temple was torn, that word there, torn, is only used two times in the Gospel of Mark. It's used at the beginning and it's used at the end here. This is one. The other instance when this is used is in Mark 1.10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, this is the baptism of Jesus, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, 
I don't know if you've read this before and thought, that's a weird way to describe the heavens opening, being torn open. That's an odd use of language that Mark has there. And the only other time that word is used is right here when Jesus dies. The veil of the temple is torn in two. And at the baptism of Jesus, what do we learn? We learn that God has come down to mankind in the person of his son. God has come to dwell among men as one of them. And here at the death of Christ, when the veil is torn, what do we learn? We learn that now, through the death of his son, human beings now have access to God and to be in his presence. They can be with him through the tearing of the veil. And so Mark has bookended his gospel with two instances of the joining together of heaven and earth, of the divine with humanity. God comes down to become man, to dwell with man, and man gains access to God to draw into his presence. And that is what God originally intended, isn't it? I mean, think back to the Garden of Eden. God created human beings to live in the garden, certainly to multiply and to have dominion, but to dwell with him in his presence. God came and walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden in the afternoon and had a relationship with them. And if you fast forward all the way to Revelation chapter 21, what does it tell us? That God comes down to dwell with man, which is what he originally intended to do in the garden. And our sin messed it all up. How Did those two passages come together? God did walk with us in the garden. God will come to dwell with us once again. How do those two come together? They come together right here. They come together through the Son of God taking on human form and giving up his life to provide access to the Father for each one of us. It's through his death. I don't know if you've ever seen a fish out of water. I'm not a big fisherman, but if you've ever seen a fish, you pull a fish in and they end up flopping around on the ground. You can tell they're in, they're in desperate straits there. They flop, they gasp, they try to get whatever oxygen they can into their lungs or whatever they have through their gills and it's not working very well for them and they desperately need to be back in the water. And they seem very at home in the water. Everything's working fine. God created us to dwell with him in his presence, to know him, to be with him, to receive our identity, to receive meaning in life, to receive satisfaction through his presence and through a relationship with him. Listen to how Psalm 16 puts this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. No good apart from you. You make me to know the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We have no good apart from God, but man, we have been trying for thousands of years in so many different ways to find good apart from God, haven't we? 
We try it in every possible way. Maybe if I do this, maybe if I have this much money, maybe if I buy this, maybe if I enter into this relationship, I can find goodness and joy and satisfaction apart from God. But that's not how you and I were designed. We're a fish out of water, man. We're flopping around, trying to breathe, trying to find satisfaction, and it doesn't work because we weren't made that way. And it's only through the death of Jesus Christ that you and I now have access to what we truly need, which is the presence of God. Our only lasting and complete satisfaction and rest is to be found in him through the death of his son. So for meaning and identity and purpose and satisfaction and joy, go to the death of Christ and go to the Father through the Son. That's the only path to it. That's our first declaration. We have access because he was forsaken. But our second one is that he was witnessed for our confidence. How do we have confidence in our access? How do you and I actually know that we have access to the Father. Well, Mark tries to help with that in verses 40 through 47. So last time, or the last few times we've been together, the last we've heard of any followers of Jesus is the, the denial of Peter, of Jesus. Other than that, we don't know what's happened to his followers, basically. We know Peter denied him, We've seen Jesus walk through the trials on his own, alone. We've seen him being mocked and scorned, and he's alone. But now, once he's on the cross and once he dies, we actually see that some of his followers are, are fairly close by. They've gotten as close as they can. Look at verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and they were also, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Well, this is the first time we read about these women in the Gospel of Mark. So it would be very easy to think that they haven't been there, but Mark tells us they have. They've been there all along. And they enter into the gospel at this moment for a very specific purpose. And they're mentioned three times really in in just a very few short verses. They're mentioned down in verse 47, we'll see that, and then they're mentioned again in chapter 16 and verse 1. So Mark introduces us to them and then just spends almost the rest of the gospel talking about them. Why? Why does he do that? What role do they play? Well, they've clearly been his followers throughout his ministry. Mark makes that clear. And there are quite a few other women who are nearby besides just these ones who are named. And we tend to think of Jesus walking along with his 12 disciples and, you know, just the 13 of them. But actually, there was a a much bigger group that were considered his followers that were with him most of the time, or at least some of the time. And these women were a part of that. And these women are the ones who are actually here at the crucifixion, whereas Most of the disciples aren't here at the crucifixion. Mark doesn't mention any of them, but of course the other Gospels mention that at least John was nearby. In many ways, these women are the more thoroughly dedicated and more persistent of Jesus' disciples. And we'll get to their primary role in just a minute, 
But Mark introduces us to another character who helps this same point that we're getting at, that Jesus was witnessed, his death was witnessed, his burial for our confidence. Who's this other character? We'll look at verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So we already know Jesus has died, and this makes it clear. It's Friday, later afternoon. It's the day before the Sabbath, and it's drawing close to early evening. And so the Sabbath is the next day, and they would not want to leave this body, the body of Jesus, on the cross overnight. And then they'd have to leave the body through the Sabbath. And they didn't want to do that. So Joseph goes to take responsibility for Jesus. Now, we only get a little bit of info about Joseph, but this is a crazy description of him. It says he's a member of the council. What council was that? It was the Sanhedrin. So the group of 70 who condemned Jesus to die, Joseph is a part of that council. And he's not just a part of it. He's a respected member of the council. But at the same time, Mark says, he was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. So in the Gospel of Mark, that idea of looking for the kingdom is associated with at least sympathy for Jesus. It's associated with Jesus's ministry. So there's a reasonable chance that Joseph was actually a follower of Jesus. So that brings up all sorts of questions. I'm sure they're popping up in your mind right now. So was Joseph there when they condemned Jesus to die, when they were making up lies about him? Why didn't he say anything if he was there? Maybe he wasn't there. We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. Maybe a question you can ask when you get to heaven. But the point here is, Joseph really puts his reputation on the line to take responsibility for Jesus' body. Look what it says at the end of verse 43. He took courage and went to Pilate to associate yourself with a man who has been condemned to die and died by crucifixion at the hands of the Roman Empire. To go and ask for his body would have been a significant thing. And Joseph is really putting his, his wealth and his reputation and as a member of the Sanhedrin, he's putting all of that on the line. Now, Jews would not have wanted to leave a body on the cross overnight, but the Romans didn't care at all. In fact, they would have preferred to leave a body on a cross because it was part of the dehumanization of the victim. Jesus had been mocked and scorned and degraded on the cross, and that was the whole point of crucifixion. And adding to that would be leaving his body on the cross to be picked at and devoured by birds and other animals. That's what they wanted to do. That was normal practice for Romans, for the Roman soldiers. In fact, to take a body off of the cross when a person had died would take a special concession from the local leader. You had to get permission to do that, which is why Joseph goes to Pilate. But even when they take a body down, if the Romans did that, normally they would just throw that body into a mass grave. What does it matter to them? So with all of that in mind, Joseph is really putting his reputation on the line, and it does take quite a bit of courage to go and ask for Jesus' body. 
And one of the things Mark does here that I want to draw your attention to is he makes it very clear and goes to great lengths to tell us Jesus is actually dead. I mean, look at this. Look how Mark does this. First of all, in verse 43, he asked for the body of Jesus. And then verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Again, he tells us that he said, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, like dead over and over again, and then look at the end of verse 45, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Mark calls it a corpse specifically to help us understand Jesus is dead here. Why the stress on the official empire recognition, Roman empire recognition that Jesus is dead? Well, you can't rise from the dead unless you're actually dead. And Mark is setting us up for that. So keep in mind what I just told you about victims of crucifixion when they died and Roman treatment of those victims. They just toss them out. They don't care what happens to them. They were not worthy of any dignity. And that's what's so amazing about how Joseph handles Jesus here. Look at verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. To have a tomb that was this close to Jerusalem, you had to be buried outside of the city, but Jews wanted to be buried as close to the city as they possibly could. And so to have a tomb that was this close to the city would have required quite a bit of money. And this would have been expensive for him to have. And so what you have here is these tombs were caves dug back into the limestone around Jerusalem. And inside these caves were multiple chambers where you could house family members who'd passed away. And there were shelves in each of these chambers. And, you know, you would put grandma up on the shelf and she'd be enshrouded and put spices on her and close the door. And then when grandpa passed away later, you would put him in there as well. And it was a family tomb that was used and reused. And when the body had decomposed, you'd take the bones out and put them in an ossuary and put another family member in there. So these were used for generations. So this must be a family tomb of a very wealthy man, Joseph. And so the entire process that happens here had to happen fairly quickly to make sure that Jesus is in the tomb and the stone has been rolled in front of the entrance before sunset on Friday. Now notice what Mark says in verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Why would, why would Mark emphasize that? Why would he want us to understand that these women saw exactly where Jesus was laid? If you pair this with verse, verses 40 and 41, Mark wants us to know, listen, there were people who saw him die, who saw his body taken off the cross, who saw where he was laid, and then on Sunday morning went back to the tomb that they saw on Friday, and he wasn't there. This is not a mistake. He didn't lose consciousness. Why is it so important to make this chain of connections with people who actually witnessed the whole thing and saw the whole thing? Why does Mark stress this? He stresses this because our faith is in real historical events. And that might sound like an academic point that I'm trying to press home with you. 
But these things really happen, and Mark wants us to know that. These things happened. They were witnesses. There were, there were witnesses to these events. When Mark wrote his gospel, you could go and find the people who saw these things happen and ask them about it. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. There were hundreds of witnesses who saw these things happen. These are real historical events, events. and our faith is based on things that actually took place in history. We're not basing our faith on a myth, on a religious idea. Our faith is based on history and on real events. One author who I appreciate very much, J. Gresham Machen, lived in the early 20th century, said this about the importance of history. Give up history, and you can retain some things. You can retain a belief in God. But philosophical theism, or theorizing about there being a God from reason and philosophy, that, that's what he means by that, has never been a fat, powerful force in the world. You can retain a lofty ethical idea, ideal. You can believe in moral standards without history, but be perfectly clear about one point. You can never retain a gospel, for gospel means good news, tidings, information about something that has happened. In other words, it means history. A gospel independent of history is simply a contradiction in terms. So why can we be so confident that our access to God has been granted through the substitutionary death of Christ and ultimately through his resurrection? Because the Bible records history. It's not mythology. It's not made-up stories. The Bible records history, and our faith is built when we know that the biblical authors recorded what really happened. You can bank on this. It's history. And if the biblical authors recorded what actually happened, real-life events, regarding a man named Jesus of Nazareth, that who died, was witnessed, was buried in a tomb, and then three days later, his body was not in that tomb, and the disciples didn't take it, and he claimed, his disciples claimed he'd been risen from the dead, then you and I have to reckon with those historical facts. You and I have to do something with those facts in our lives. And that makes all the difference. If Jesus is who he said he is, if he rose from the dead, then you can't live your life apart from reckoning with that reality. It will change everything. And first and foremost, it will change the way we think about the gospel, and it will change the way we think about our access to the Father which is really good news. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that you, through the human authors, were so detailed in recording these historical events and also recording the, the theological importance of these things. We have access to you because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Use these truths in our hearts change us, change the way we live by them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.